everybody's awake this morning. That's good. You should be. You got plenty of sleep. You know, the time change. It's good, right? Um, couple things I uh, just want to mention to you as we're uh, gathered here together this morning. Uh, number one, uh, the, uh, the, the Bible sale that we have been uh, announcing is going real well. We're about to place our fourth order. Uh, I, think we've, I think we've got about 25 Bibles in people's hands at this point. Um, and uh, if you'd like to be in on that, I'm going to place that on Tuesday. And so see us in the office afterwards, and we'll get you hooked up. Uh, with an ESV Bible if you want one. Uh, that goes on until December the 1st, at which point it ends. So um, there's, it is a limited time deal. Uh, or you can go to uh, www.crossway.org slash C-H-I-L and order one for yourself uh, online. But if you order it that way, you pay shipping. Uh, you order it through us, you don't pay sales tax, you don't pay shipping. Um, so that, uh, that'll help you out. Uh, the other thing is, uh, last week I talked about this um, when we were talking about the ordinances. Uh, if you have not been baptized and you would like to be, we are going to have a baptismal service on the 12th, which is Saturday at 6.30 p.m. at Pierce. Uh, so, you know, have dinner and, um, and then come over to Pierce at about 6.30. Uh, we've got... Uh, uh, We've got a few people who are interested in being baptized at this point. Um, we certainly would be happy to have a few more. So if you um, would want to be baptized, talk to me and uh, this week, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And then uh, if you are part of the church family, uh, it would be great if you would come on Saturday night at 630 and be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters as they uh, follow the Lord in obedience and being baptized. So. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking, we're going to be, we're at the point um, in our study of the statement of faith uh, that we have as a church, uh, where we're talking about Christian living. And really, the best illustration I can come up with on, on, uh, on this is, is one that I have used before, so hopefully, um, hopefully you won't remember it too distinctly. Uh, but in any case, uh, let me ask you, how many of you have ever worked a puzzle with your family? Ever worked a puzzle? A lot of times in the wintertime when it's really cold and gross out, and you're trying to keep the kids from climbing each other and beating them and whatever, we try to work puzzles or, or whatever. And, um, and so let me ask you, those of you who worked puzzles, what's the most important piece of a puzzle? The last one, the last one, right? No, 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 not the last one. Not the corner, not the edge. Now, you might think that the last one is really important. At my house, if you have little kids, you understand this. Everybody wants to put in the last piece of the puzzle. When I was a kid, we'd like all sneak one off the table and stick it under our leg. So we could be the last one to put in, right? Uh, that's really important because that gives you the full picture. Uh, a lot of people think the corner because, well, that's, you've only got four of them and you kind of define the edges of, uh, with those corners or the edge because, well, if you know where the picture stops, well, then you know um, exactly where, uh, what the boundaries are of the picture. But the most important piece, believe it or not, is not a piece. It's, as Jim mentioned, it's the box. Why? Because with the box, you have the picture 
of what it's supposed to look like. And so if it's, you know, if it's particularly, this might be important if you've got like a whole, you know, 500-piece puzzle of picture of marbles, right? Uh, and you have no idea where the red ones are. Uh, now you have the picture and you know. Or if it's supposed to be, you know, I don't know, unicorns and kittens, you know, you know the unicorns are here and kittens are over there. Or if it's a big bull elk, you know, that his, the top of his horns, you know, are cresting over the top of the mountain in the picture. And it's, it's great, right? You have the picture. You know what you're trying to make, what the goal is, what the end result is supposed to look like. And so this morning, as we talk about the Christian life, I want to give you, in a sense, the box top. Not how all the pieces necessarily fit together, but I want to give you the broad general outline picture of the Christian life and how it operates and how it works according to the scriptures. So um, the first place, we're going to look at three passages of scripture uh, that reveal to us aspects of the Christian life, and uh, then we're going to, to draw some conclusions from each of these. Uh, the first one I want you to look at is from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Uh, you'll be very familiar with this passage when you start reading it, but I'd like you to, to follow along as I read. This is what the Word of God says. And behold, this is Luke chapter 10, beginning verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down, down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, again, this is a very familiar story. And, uh, I mean, even lots of people who never go to church or who only go like maybe Christmas and Easter, they know this story, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And most people, when they read it, they understand it as just sort of a nice little moralistic story where people are told by Jesus, be like the Good Samaritan, don't be like the priest, don't be like the Levite who ignored a man in need, uh, be a good person and not a bad one. But 
I want to submit to you that if that that is absolutely, if that's all you understand Jesus to be saying, that you have missed the point of the story. What, after all, kicks off the story? A lawyer comes to Jesus, and what does he say? What's the question? Look at your Bible. What does it say? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, there, there, are, there, are, lots of, there are lots of people out there who think that the Christian life is like that. That there is a list somewhere out there, like in any other kind of religion that you come up with. You know, if you're a Buddhist, you have the Noble Eightfold Path. If you're a Muslim, you've got the Five Pillars of Islam. If you're a, uh, if you're a Christian scientist, you know, you've got your little gig that you do. Uh, if you're a good Jew, you've got your thing. And he says, teacher, essentially, what's the list? What do I have to do? to inherit eternal life. In other words, I want to I find out exactly what the standard is so that I can make sure I'm on the right side of it, Jesus. Give me your list of do's and don'ts that I can attain eternal life. What's Jesus say? He doesn't, this is, this is one of the things that, that is really interesting about Jesus. A lot of times when he is asked a question, he answers a question with a question. And he says, well, what does the law say? You're an attorney. What does the law say? And the man says, well, it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus say? Good answer. Correct answer. That is what the law says. In fact, there are 613 laws given in the, in the law of Moses by God. There are, they are divisible roughly into those two categories. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first six have to do with loving God. The last four have to do with loving your neighbor. And then all the other laws that are expansions of the Mosaic law into specific situations, like how do I love my neighbor when my ox gets loose how do i love my neighbor when there's an intruder in my house how do i love my neighbor when it comes to uh business deals how do i love god when it comes to this circumstance and this circumstance and that circumstance and all these other 603 laws are expansions of the the ten commandments giving situational application but jesus says essentially what the lawyer says is correct that if you obey the law, it d d breaks down into these. Uh, love God perfectly and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And as long as you do that, you're in the clear. Okay, what's the problem with that? Problem is, is that none of us can do that. And... Uh, you know, uh, Jesus, we, okay, well, Jesus says, hey, do that and you will live. You will have eternal life. As long as you perfectly love God and perfectly love your neighbor, you're in the clear. No worries. Oh, 
Well, I can't do that. So what's the lawyer do? Well, he backs off. He's, right, he's looking for loopholes. This is half the job of law, right? To find loopholes where I'm not guilty before the law. You're an attorney. That's why you go to find all the loopholes for your clients, right? That's why you hire an attorney, to find loopholes. And so he's looking for loopholes. And he says, in fact, the text here says, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, now, if I have to love my neighbor perfectly, then let's really define what we mean by neighbor. And again, Jesus doesn't give a direct answer of who neighbor is. He gives a story. And in the story, you've got what you think are going to be real predictable elements. You've got a man going down. Any place in Israel that you are traveling uh, in relationship to uh, Jerusalem, if you are going out from Jerusalem to anywhere else, you are going down from Jerusalem. And if you're going to Jerusalem from anywhere else, you're going up to Jerusalem on a mountain. And so it says he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I wish I could show you what this road looks like, but it's one of these roads that winds through rocky canyons and so forth. And back in the ancient world, it was a great place if you were a highwayman or a robber to hang out because there are all these little caves around there and plenty of places to hide. And you can, you know, like in one of those old westerns, you know, get up on the rocks and you can ride down from the high ground and victimize everybody down below and it was a dangerous road and people fell among robbers there all the time and so jesus says you remember this road there was a man there who fell among robbers and people began to pass by and the first one is a priest he's a descendant of aaron He's the one who should know and therefore obey the law best of everybody. But what does he do? He sees this man laying stripped and naked and half dead and possibly dying. And he leaves him lay. Why? Well, if you were a priest, you were defiled by touching a dead body. And if this guy dies in your care, well, then you would be ritually unclean and unable to worship at the temple. This would be a big deal. He leaves the guy lay. He has no compassion. And then later, a Levite, someone who's not a descendant of Aaron, but someone who is uh, of the tribe of Levi who assists the priests at the temple. In other words, a little, just one rung lower on the religious ladder. He sees the man, and what does he do? Goes around on one side. And then the next person that you expect, if you're a Jewish person, which this man is, this attorney is a Jew, the next person that you expect is you've got kind of a hierarchy. Priest, Levite, righteous Jew. But who's the, who's the hero of the story? A Samaritan. It says a Samaritan, a foreigner, someone who had some Jewish heritage but who had intermixed with the Assyrian people. The people the Assyrians had brought in after the 
conquering of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., the Assyrians had brought in all these pagans, and they'd intermarried with the Jewish peasants that were there, and they produced these people called Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. In fact, if you were a pious Jew, you wouldn't even travel through Samaria because that's where the half-breeds lived. The people who didn't, ex who didn't accept the whole of the Old Testament lived. People who, who had kind of their own deal, and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim near Samaria. And they hated each other. And Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. He says, a Samaritan, when he saw the man, he went to him and he bandaged him and he gave him the ancient equivalent of Neosporin, a little oil and wine for his wounds. And he wraps him up. He sets him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn, pays the innkeeper the equivalent of a month's stay at the inn, and says, if, you, if he costs you any more money than this, I'll pay for it when I get back. And he says to the attorney, which one was a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And notice the attorney can't even utter the words, the Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him was a neighbor. And so what's Jesus' point? What's Jesus' point is this, is that who is my neighbor? Anyone in my, that I run into who is in need of me loving and caring for them is my neighbor. And what's the question that is supposed to then come up in the guy's mind? Well, wait a minute, Jesus. You just moved the goalpost out further. I was wanting to move them in closer where I could score. I can't do that. I can't, I can't perfectly love my neighbor in every circumstance. And I know I don't perfectly love God. What are you doing to me? See, the thing is, is that there are two kinds of righteousness that people try to obtain. And only one kind works. You can either have works righteousness or you can have gift righteousness. Works righteousness is one that everybody understands. You come up with your religious list of activity. Well, I'm going to give 10% of all I get to the church. Great idea but doesn't earn you necessarily any favor with God. I'm going to go to church every week. Again, great idea, but doesn't necessarily earn you any, any brownie points with God. Church is for you, not for God. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to volunteer down at the homeless shelter. Good, good thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop cheating my people I do business with. I'm going to uh, be really moral. I'm going to be faithful to my spouse. I'm going to uh, not be a murderer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not, as the church I grew up in, you know, 
I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do, you know. Um, you know, you can come up with whatever your list of kind of religious activity is, right? And I'm going to be really good. You know what God says about all of our righteousness and all of our attempts? He says it's offensive. Since there are kids here, I will not be as graphic as the scriptures. But basically, it's this. Pick a gross bodily function and the body and the byproduct of it and imagine putting it in a box with a ribbon, taking it to God and saying, here, I made you something. Okay? Now, God looks at that and says, you know what? That's offensive. But I worked really hard on it. Still gross, still offensive, still nasty. And all of our religious attempts, is that is exactly how God views it. If you don't believe me, read Philippians, read Isaiah. They both have real clear examples. That is exactly how God views it. All of our religious activity to earn God's approval, God says, is an offense and is nasty, and he wants nothing to do with it. Instead, what God wants is gift righteousness. Righteousness you receive, in other words, as a gift. And that is the beginning of the Christian life. Of going to God and saying, you know what? Pile up all my stuff, and it doesn't amount to anything worthwhile at all. I am still lost. I still can't attain to your standard. I still can't be perfectly right before God. I still can't perfectly love God or my neighbor, either one, as the law requires. And so I need somebody to donate to me a righteousness I don't have. And what we get is what the Reformers called the great exchange. We get to transfer to Jesus all of our sin and all of our shortcoming and all of our evil, and he transfers to us all of his righteousness as a gift. Not something we earn. In fact, we can't earn it, and our attempts to earn it are offensive. But something that we receive. And then we actually begin to act as the Holy Spirit works within us. We actually begin to act with the kind of righteousness that we were trying to crank up before. Because what happens is when we are truly a recipient of the gift righteousness, that Jesus promises to give us, then the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he baptizes us into the body of Christ and he begins to change us from the inside out so that we really do love our neighbor as ourselves. And we really do love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But not as a result of my own effort, as a result of God's effort within me. And the Christian life begins and continues there of a recognition that I can't attain to God's standard. 
And so God is going to have to enable me to meet it. And he does. Do Christians have to keep the law? No. Why not? Because Jesus already did. He kept it on my behalf, and I'm connected to him. And so, therefore, I can trust him, and he will change me on his own, according to his good time, as I follow him and look to him and trust him. He will change me and make me able to obey what I could not obey. All right, one, one additional thing I want to look at. Uh, go over to Ephesians chapter 6. This is part of the Christian life, too. We're not called not only to a life of love and justice, where God's justice is satisfied and his requirements of love for himself and for our neighbor is satisfied as he brings justice on Jesus to make us into the kind of people who love him and neighbor. But the Christian life also involves a battle in which we get to participate in defeating the enemy. I don't know if you know it or not, uh, but you are at war. You may not ever have remembered enlisting or ever being issued your weapon, or, and you may not know what platoon you are in, but you are at war. Read this text with me, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I want to point out several things in this passage. Uh, number one, Paul makes it clear that as a Christian, you're at war. You are at war. Whether you know it or not, uh, whether you like it or not, whether or not you thought you volunteered for this, you're at war. And in fact, the war that we are in is the central battle of all of history. And it is the battle between the forces of light led by the Son of God and the forces of darkness led by Satan and the demons that fell with him. And by trusting in Jesus Christ, you placed yourself on the side of the Messiah who fights and one day will completely crush the serpent who corrupted not only humanity but all of creation. 
what's the nature of the battle? Well, first of all, it is not uh, primarily in question. It is a victory that is already won. How do I know? Because I read the end of the book. Okay, if you ever want to, if you're ever reading a mystery, something you don't know that you know, want to find out how this ends. It's getting a little suspenseful here. Read the last chapter, find out. I read the last chapter. I found out we win. Good news. But in the meantime, there is a battle on to find out exactly how and where God's kingdom will advance and expand throughout the world. And the reality of it is, is that you and I are on a rescue mission. And our job is to rescue people with the gospel from what Colossians describes as the domain of darkness and to bring them by faith into the kingdom of God's dear son. And we are people who have already experienced that. And the idea is essentially that Satan has, this, has control over the entire dark world. You ever seen, uh, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, great picture of this, of the idea of the kingdom of darkness advancing and fighting against the, the, the people of light. And what happens is they go on a rescue mission to go reclaim the world from the forces of darkness. And this is the idea that we are at war against not just we're not at war against people primarily we're at war against what what paul describes in various terms and those terms are all terms that represent levels of the demonic hierarchy against rulers and powers and authorities and and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and when you're at war you have weapons and Primarily, what this battle is about is about advancing the kingdom of God through the gospel. And that is why, by the way, Paul asks that they would pray for him. Remember the last verses of this text? He, talks, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication. I think we're supposed to pray. And also for me, why? So that... He would boldly proclaim the gospel because it is the gospel which sets people free. And it is therefore the primary weapon that we have to stand against evil is the gospel. It is the gospel which transforms the world. And we are to use it. We, we are given, Paul says, we're given several weapons. I won't give in, get into the whole fitting of where and all, all that. But here's the, here's the metaphor. We're given truth. We're given righteousness. We're given the gospel. We're given faith. We're given salvation. We're given his word. We're given his spirit. And we're given prayer as weapons to fight and to stand against the evil forces that are at work in this world. And by our salvation, we become righteous as we respond to the truth of the gospel in faith. Amen? And then we receive the Holy Spirit who illumines and makes clear the word to us and enables us to pray with his power and in his uh, control against the enemy. Amen? Amen. 
And by the Spirit's power at work through the Word and through prayer, we are transformed so that we shine forth into a dark place. And by the Holy Spirit's power, we also proclaim the gospel so that we are able to help people escape from the, the domain of darkness and be brought into the kingdom of God's Son. And that is spiritual warfare in a nutshell. That what you are trying to do is to carry the power of God through the word, the spirit, the gospel, and prayer to people who are still enslaved and ruled by Satan and his demons. And who apart from the Holy Spirit and the gospel coming into their life are going to die enslaved and who are going to experience the effects of sin in death and hell. And we have the opportunity and the privilege of going forth into the world and proclaiming the good news that sets people free from all of that and having them join us in the army of the sun. And there's this great image. Let me see how much time I got. Not much. All right. Um, there's this great image that's here. He uses it several times. He says when, that you'll be able to withstand and that when you've done everything, to stand. And what Paul is doing is he's borrowing language from the Roman Praetorian Guard. Praetorian Guard was the elite crack troops of the Roman military. And they never retreated, ever. Which is why in Paul's description of the armor that you get, there's nothing to cover your back. Why? If you're not turned around, you never get speared. Right? It's all to cover the front side of you. And their battle cry when they went out onto the battlefield was stand. And what would happen is this. Whole barbarian horde, you know, the Gauls and the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and whatever would ride down, <clears throat> blood and thunder, and here they go, crash, boom. And these guys would not back up. And their job was to defend the area that they could reach with their swords. And they would stand close enough that any place I can reach, I can defend. And the idea is, is that we are the army that advances. Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against those who follow him. Gates are defensive. You break them down. When, why? When you're the advancing army. And we're called to be the advancing army, the one that carries forth the gospel out into the world, all over the world. And I want to look at just one passage here, and I'll try and wrap this up, okay? I got more material than I got time. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I know you all know this verse. If you don't know this verse, you need to memorize it. Matthew 28. Verses 18 to 20, and Jesus said, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. They're going to be accomplished. How do we know? 
because Jesus has all authority. And he commissions his followers in his power and with his authority to go and be his ambassadors of his kingdom in all the world. And he, he gives us a twofold command. He says, first of all, go into all the world. And by that, what he means is, wherever you are as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're to go into every place in the world. There should not be any place in the world where there are not Christians. To all the world, to every people group, to every language, to every race, to every socioeconomic group, to every class, to every level of ability and disability, every people on the earth ought to hear from God's people. Hard places, prisons, poor areas, hospitals, every place. Even corporate America, amen? Is there any place that needs the gospel more than corporate America? Well, maybe somewhere, but it's a needy spot. And he says, you're to go, and when you go, you're to make disciples. What's making disciples? Well, you're to share the gospel with them, and then as a result of that, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which implies an understanding that Jesus is the Son of God and that you worship a triune God because otherwise you wouldn't baptize in the triune name of God. And then you're to also teach that person everything that Jesus taught. And the idea is essentially that not only are we to begin our life by grace when we can continue the fight by grace, but also we're to spread the faith. We're to be about the process of making more little Christs, which is what Christian means. So that the people that we meet as we lead them to faith in Jesus, we teach them also everything that Jesus taught so that they can become like Jesus too. Amen? Amen. All right. And Jesus gives us a great promise, and I want you to see this. He says, I am going to be with you. It literally reads... Every day, every day, so that on the day that you get that diagnosis from the doctor, Jesus is with you. On the day that you learned that you were infertile, Jesus was there with you. On the day that you heard your company was going to lay people off, Jesus was there then. Or the day that your colleague got a promotion and you didn't, Jesus is there. On the day when you got your first car or got married or had your first child or graduated, Jesus was there too. He is with us every day. And that thought ought to encourage us because we're not only being sent out to accomplish a task, we're being sent out with Jesus to accomplish the task. So it's not by our own effort that we do this. Three questions, and then we'll take communion here. Or actually, we'll sing, and then we'll take communion. Uh, number one, first question, and I'll make these brief. What kind of righteousness do you have? Do you have gift righteousness? Or you have come to God and said, look, uh, all my stuff is old and busted, and it isn't worth anything 
Anything that I crank up on my own, I know doesn't count in your, in your sight at all. I need a gift. Or are you still out there trying somehow to attain God's presence and his righteousness and his forgiveness based on your own effort? Well, God, you know, I gave up eight rated R movies and I gave up, you know, drinking and I gave up card playing and I gave up chewing tobacco and I gave up, you know, really fatty food. And, you know, I gave up all this stuff and, you know, aren't you impressed? I mean, because, you know, God, actually, um, you know, I'm awesome and you're welcome. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you trying to earn God's favor or have you received it as a gift? Which kind of righteousness do you have? If you have any other kind of gift righteousness, it doesn't count. Number two, are you fighting against the enemy? If our job is to defeat the enemy and expand the kingdom of God, through the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel and the word and the spirit, then are you seeking the Lord in all things, as Paul says? Or has your sword gotten dusty and your breastplate of righteousness rusty and you no longer speak the truth and you no longer have any boldness in carrying forth the gospel, which is the only hope of the world? Last question, where are your men? Where are your men? Jesus said we're to go into the world and make disciples, which means we ought to be able to identify who some of them might be. Amen? And if God has called you to make disciples, then my question to you is where are they? you don't have any, that's an indicator that you're being disobedient to one of Jesus' central commands. You don't have ladies, any ladies who are following after you. That's a problem. Anybody whose life you're influencing. And by the way, if you're a parent, it starts with your kids. If you're an Awana leader, it starts with those kids. If you're a man in this church, it starts with your kids, if you have them. It starts with other men that you work with or that look up to you or admire you. Where are they? Who are they? You can't name them. We need to repent, and we need to get busy making disciples. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I have just laid out a whole lot of stuff, and I'm sure that all of the people here feel like they have tried to get a drink of water out of the fire hydrant. And it's more content than I have time for. And, and Father, I just pray that somehow your grace would come through and would cover both my effort and their ears. And that, um, that you would be at work in us, Father to help us live out the Christian life, which is based not on works, but on grace. So that you empower the transformation, you empower the battle that we fight against the enemy, you empower the making of disciples as we trust you in faith. And Father, I pray 
that you would help us to understand that in a deeper way today and the next day and the next and for the rest of our lives that we would understand the seriousness of the Christian life but the fact that it is powered fully and completely by your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.